Okay, does that sound like it's working? All right, great. Well, today we'll continue on with our uh, examination of Ephesians chapter 5. And I'd like to begin by reading the passage. Our passage for today is chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. And so it says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So before I begin, let's please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your holy scriptures. We thank you that they are your words. And Lord, we tremble when it comes to preaching from your word, because we know how important it is to accurately exposit on your word. And so, Lord, I ask for your help in doing so, that I may do so accurately, and that it may be encouraging and edifying to all of us that are here. And Lord, as we hear the words, please let them sink deeply into our hearts and help us to apply them to our own lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, last week we began our study of Ephesians 5, and and please let me know if uh, it seems like it gets louder when I go down. So if you have trouble hearing or or you wish you couldn't hear, just let me know. So last week we began our study of Ephesians chapter 5 on a positive note. In verse 1, we are commanded to be imitators of God as beloved children. And verse 2 goes on to say that we are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And Adam expounded on this, what it means that is to imitate God and to walk in love following Christ's example. And they were two truly encouraging verses to be called beloved children and to be commanded to love God and to imitate God is, is very encouraging. And to be asked to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us is encouraging indeed. In fact, we know that there is no lover, greater love than that to give your life for another. But such love requires that all forms of immorality and filthy speech not even be named among us. In our passage today then, Paul turns his discourse on a dime and exhorts us with the, really the antithesis of those first two verses that were so positive. <clears throat> Here he warns us who not to imitate, that is, the sons of disobedience. And we are told that they are not 
to be counted among the children of God. And we, all, we are also warned not to love the things of this world. The ills listed here are among the gravest sins that required the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. These sins, he says, will lead to disinheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now before we move on, I would like to dwell briefly on this idea of imitation. Imitation really is natural to a child, for better or for worse. And it is a miserable Christian home where a boy does not imitate his father. And it is the father's fault in nine cases out of ten when he doesn't. Whenever a son feels himself to be a beloved child, he is necessarily drawn to model himself after the father that he loves because he knows that that father loves him. In fact, children are obliged to imitate their parents in what is good, especially when they are dearly beloved. The character that we bear as God's children obliges us, as we learned last week, to resemble him and especially to mimic his love and his goodness and his mercy and readiness to forgive. But Christian doctrine does not say to us, now begin and work and fiddle away at yourselves and get up some sort of excellence and character and then come to God and pray that he accepts you. That would be putting the cart before the horse. We are to begin by taking our personal salvation and the fact that God loves us as already decided and work from there. We must realize that we are indeed beloved children and set to work to live accordingly. And by His grace, it may be done. But if we are to walk in love, according to Christ's example, Understanding, excuse me, we must not only understand the attributes of our God and Savior, but we must also understand what, what, what displeases our Father in heaven. So our passage today, verses three through five, give us a clear understanding as to what displeases our Father in heaven. So after we are called to imitate Him, In verse 3 he says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. This chapter contains many similar passages found elsewhere in Paul's letters. And so I think they are well worth our consideration for application in our lives. So in this first verse, there are three things listed here which the Apostle desires Christians to hold in such disgust that they should not even be named. Or in other words, they should be entirely known, unknown among us. Sexual immorality 
and all impurity means all vile and filthy lusts that the world has to offer us. The list of these sins is long and includes such things as fornication, homosexuality, sodomy, and adultery. And yet the influence of this lustful world has been so pervasive and the church so weak and undiscerning at times that many churches have been have become convinced, many Christians, I should say, have become convinced that all sorts of sexual excesses and impurities are covered by grace. Or they can be rendered morally safe if engaged in with the right attitude, especially if some scripture verse can be twisted to seemingly give support to their practice. But the Word of God is clear about these sins over and over again throughout the Bible. Two examples of this are in James 4. One, well, the first example in James 4.4 4 reads, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, we read, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. These sins described in this first verse are deeply hurtful and leave a man who commits them exceedingly vulnerable. Because of the strong nature, sexual nature of human beings, these sins are powerful and can become perverted in unimaginable ways. If given free reign, sexual sins lead to complete insensitivity to the feelings and welfare of others, to horrible brutality, and frequently to murder, as news stories testify daily. And again, as we have already seen, they are an abomination to God. There is only one place where sexual intimacy is permissible, and that is found in the divine institution of covenantal marriage. And thankfully, God defines the context of marriage in the closing verses of this very chapter. In verse 31 we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And verse 31 is really just a quotation of Genesis 2.24 where God establishes the first marriage, which was the very crown of creation in Adam and Eve. And Genesis 1.28 adds to that, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, 
and fill the earth. Well, there is much more that could be said about marriage, but that's for another preacher. Suffice it to say for now that marriage is the place for sexual intimacy in any other context, and in any other context, it is sin. And it must be not it must not be named among us. Well, the third word on this list is covetousness, which is nothing more than the immoderate desire for gain. The, the connection in which this word is found is notable. It is associated with the lowest and most degrading of sins. And it too is said to not be named among us, as is true for the other two on the list. That is, it should never be spoken of without consent, nor mentioned without rebuke, as Paul does so here and in so many other places in his letters. The repetitive connection between covetousness and sexual immorality and all impurity in these verses, I think, conveys the truth which is expressed by the union of the two kinds of coveting in the Tenth Commandment. One is the lust or the covenant, covetousness of lust, and the other is the covetousness of avarice or greed. The Tenth Commandment in Exodus 20 Verse 17 reads as follows. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. That's a pretty comprehensive list. So what was Paul's assessment then of covetousness? He considered it as repulsive and and as dreadful a sin as any on this list. One to be regarded in the same light as the most gross, gross of sins. It was to be scorned by all who bore the Christian name. The covetous man, according to Paul, is to be ranked with the immoral, the impure, the idolaters as we shall see in verse 5. And they are counted among those who are excluded from the kingdom of God. So this leads me to a question for you. Is this the opinion in which this sin is held now? Is it the view which professing Christians take of it today? Or do we feel that there's a great difference between a covetous man and a man of impure or depraved life? And why is this so often the case? I think in part because it is so common in our world. And because it is found among those who give impressions of refinement and religion. And because it is not so easy to define what covetousness is versus defining what what impurity of life is. 
and because the public conscience is seared and the mind blinded to the low-lurking nature of this sin. Yet is not Paul's view of covetousness the right view? Who is a covetous man? A man who in pursuit of gold or wealth neglects his soul, his intellect, and his heart. A man who in in his unquenchable pursuit is without, without regard for justice, truth, charity, faith, prayer, comfort, usefulness, or conscience. The time may come, I think, when the covetous man will be regarded as deserving the same rank in the public estimation with the most vile. When a covet will be considered as much opposed to the spirit of the gospel as any of the sins named here. When that time comes, though, I think the world's conversion will probably not be far off in the distance. Well, to this principle laid out before us in verse 3, he adds the authoritative declaration that he demands nothing more from us than that which is proper among the saints. The sense is that they should not be committed by the saints so that there is no occasion to speak of them. They are utterly unsuitable for a holy people whose sins have been atoned for by the blood of Christ, whose hearts are sanctified by the Spirit of God, who profess the gospel of Christ, and who have a place and a name in God's house better than that of sons and daughters. Well, let's move on to verse 4. It reads, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So to the three sins listed in verse 3, Three more are now added. By filthiness, I understand all that is indecent or inconsistent with the humility of the godly. By foolish talking, I understand that they are conversations that are either unprofitable or simply, simply wickedly foolish. Crude joking, as it frequently happens, springs forth from idle talk, which is often concealed under a cloak of jesting or wit. It seems to be so agreeable at times, and sometimes even worthy of our approval. And yet, Paul condemns it as part of foolish talking. Jesting is often taken in a positive sense, as ingenious pleasantries in which able and intelligent men may properly indulge. No doubt there is innocent and harmless jesting that Paul cannot be forbidding here. Christians are allowed to be cheerful and pleasant, but they must be merry and wise at once. It is very difficult, I think, to be witty 
without being satirical. In fact, jesting itself often carries with it a measure of conceit that is entirely inconsistent with the character of a godly man. So Paul properly discourages the practice. In fact, he says that these three sins are out of place. In other words, they are inconsistent with our Christian duty and behavior. Instead, he says, let there be thanksgiving. Several commentators suggest that the word grace is consistent with the word thanksgiving used here. So after mentioning all of the former vices which so easily creep into our conversations, here he contrasts them with something more appropriately displayed in all our communication with one another, and that's thanksgiving. All of our conversations ought to be sweet and graceful, as is consistent with Christian content. We should speak of things that are useful or agreeable or edifying in all our communications with one another, always giving thanks to God in everything. Well, let's move on to verse 5. And again, I'll read it. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So if as yet we have not taken Paul's warning serious from the previous two verses, he buttresses his argument in verse 5, with a terrifying threat. For you may be sure of this, he says, to begin with, which means you know this to be true by virtue of the Christian doctrines that have you, been, you have been taught. It's as if he had said, make no mistake about it. So Paul begins by appealing to their own knowledge, eliminating any doubt in their minds. Again, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of Christ and God. Now, some think this verse to be harsh or inconsistent with God's goodness, that all who are guilty of sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness are excluded from the inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. But the response is simple. Paul did not say that those that are guilty of these sins and recovered from them are not pardoned. Rather, he pronounces a sentence on the sins themselves. God never tolerates sin, and it has no place at all in his kingdom. When Paul was similarly addressing the Corinthians in the same language, in 1 Corinthians 6.15 we read this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So when we have repented 
and we've given evidence that we are reconciled to God. We are no longer the same person that we formerly were. Christians are new creatures in Christ, and the power of sin and death has been conquered. We must walk in the newness of life. All of the sins above are really just a part of the old flesh, as we learned in chapter 4 of this same book. But let all those persons who are sexually immoral, impure, covetous, as long as they continue as such, be assured that they have no friendship with God and have no help of, hope of salvation. Now, covetous here, covetousness here is described as, as it is in Colossians 3.5. That is as idolatry. Not the idolatry, I think, that is so frequently condemned in Scripture, but one of another type. All covetous men must deny God and put wealth in his place as a result of their blind greediness in pursuit of gain. But why does Paul attribute covetousness alone to covetousness alone? What belongs to other carnal passions? And the answer, I think, is that it is a plague that has spread far and wide, and it has infected many. It may begin subtly, but it grows into a passion leading to all sorts of sin. Thus it receives the same general condemnation as the carnal sins of passion. I think Paul is determined to tear from our hearts this false view that covetousness is a lesser offense. As the connoisseur makes a god of his belly, so the covetous man makes a god of his wealth. He sets his affections on it and places his hope, his confidence, and delight in worldly goods, which should be reserved for God alone. He serves wealth instead of God. And again, as the verse says, of these persons it is said, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Well, finally, towards the end of this verse, we see that our inheritance is called the kingdom of Christ and of God because God has given it to his Son, who of course is God, that we may obtain it through him. So the kingdom is God's by nature and Christ's as mediator. That we are adopted as sons and daughters into such a magnificent kingdom gives us cause to be thankful. It encourages us to be imitators of a holy God and to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, which is indeed a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Well, let me close with just a few suggestions for application of this passage. 
How shall we set out in earnest to abstain from sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness? Well, I think the short answer is found in verses 1 and 2. We are to imitate God as beloved children, and we are to walk in love following Christ's example. This is certainly to be our starting point. And Scripture is full of God's attributes. And the meaning of love is woven throughout the passages. Much has been taught here recently, in fact, on these matters. By Kevin a couple weeks ago, as he surveyed 1 John regarding love. And by Adam last week, regarding imitation of God and love. So I will not elaborate on those further, but simply encourage you to study the Scriptures carefully. I would, however, like to suggest some very practical ideas that we might want to consider. We need to set boundaries for ourselves, our households, and our churches for protection. And 30 years ago, when I was a young man, there were more boundaries, I think, that existed, both societal and technological. Immorality and covetousness were rampant then, to be sure. But there was not so much tolerance and even approval for these sins that we've looked at today. And there was no cable TV. internet, or smartphones. Now, the sins that we have looked at today are advanced by the world as normal and acceptable conduct. And the Christian view on these matters is considered prudish and out of step, or in some cases is even condoned by the churches. The conduct of a sinful world is easily, or I should say easily invades our homes through our computers, phones, TVs, and much of it coming free of charge. It is easily accessible, often without accountability, and often in secret. Sexual immorality and covetousness, impurity, are all constant temptations everywhere we go, even when we stay within the walls of our own homes. So what shall we do? Well, I think we need to remember the things that enter the gates of our eyes and ears too often manifest themselves through our actions and our words. And our actions and our words flow from the abundance of our hearts. Our actions show to whom we belong. In fact, Luke 6.45 tells us this. It says, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. 
For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So I think that we are fools if we think we can constantly flood our minds and hearts with sinful images and ideology without yielding bad fruit. And don't forget the little imitators growing up in our homes or our friends who God has placed in our sphere of influence. As Christians, we should not, we must not, give the appearance of evil in our lives. Nor should we give a hint of our approval of these sins, whether intentionally or unintentionally. If you say that you are a Christian, that is to say a child of God, would anybody looking at you see that you knew anything about the love which counts no cost or the sacrifice that was not too great to be lavished on the unworthy or the sinful? To be like God then, is to set ourselves to resemble Him, which is the sum of all our duty. No Christian, I think, I'm sure, will be sinless in this present life. But it is dangerously deceptive for Christians to offer assurance of salvation to those among us while living a life characterized by conduct that is inconsistent with the faith that we proclaim. C.S. Lewis said that a Christian isn't a man who never goes wrong, but a man who is enabled to repent. So time does not permit me to list specific actions that we all might take, need to take, But if you are uncertain, please seek the wisdom of godly Christians among us. And know this, that you will accomplish nothing except by the grace of God. And as 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8 tells us, only God is able to make all grace abound in you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your words. Thank you for challenging us on these sins that are so pervasive in our world and sometimes in our churches. Lord, may we understand with careful consideration what are these sins? Where have they crept into our lives? What action must we take? How can we be accountable? Lord, help us to not walk away unchanged. Lord, I thank you so much that 
you encourage us by calling us beloved children, by inviting us to imitate you, by asking us to walk in love as following after the example of your Son. Please help us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.